I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England to the third and last of the special editions on the Roman Baths at Bath. This week we're going to focus on the practice of religion in the Roman world and at the centre at Aquaesulis. I started off with Stephen again and we were standing in the museum by the pediment of the temple which is a reconstruction of the triangular top of the temple when looked at face on. As for both of the upper episodes, you'll find there's some noise at times in the background as the life of the museum carries on around us and we move from place to place so things can sound a bit different. Please bear with me and just imagine me looking at new and exciting things. Tell me something about the religion of the empire, Stephen. Religion in the Roman Empire was really quite diverse. There was, of course, the official religion of the state, which was uh, based around the classical pantheon of deities. The emperor himself was also a deified personality. In addition to that, there are a number of uh, religions. In several cases, had come in from the east. There was Isis from Egypt. There was uh, a mother deity from Anatolia. There was Christianity, of course. Um, and there were also in the western part of the empire a number of local deities uh, that uh, uh, were the subject of local worship and veneration. And located here in Bath, it is this aspect of Roman religious life that comes through to us. We see it in the the naming of the goddess Sulis Minerva, uh, Sulis being uh, the Celtic element of her name. And we can see that in the objects that have been thrown into the spring as offerings. Some have the letters DSM written on them, meaning Dei Sulis Minerva, Ah. to the goddess Sulis Minerva. Indeed, if you actually count up the number of times in which Sulis and Minerva appear as words, which is a bit of a nerdy thing to do, but what it shows is that in terms of survival, we happen to have more references to Sulis than we do to Minerva. For people coming here, it would have been a combined deity, if you like, and the Romans are recognising that this local deity has attributes and uh, an area of interest and activity that is probably akin to their own Minerva. So there's no concern (coughs) from the central Roman world that 
these were all um, strange religions or in some way getting in the way of the worship of the Roman state religion? No, not at all. Um, they seem quite uh, keen to accommodate them and work with them. And they have problems with one or two. Christianity is, of course, a very good illustration of that. But that's because Christianity itself wasn't prepared to compromise. Right. They ended up with uh, rather brutal solutions. Yes, is there a process that goes through to combine the Sulis goddess with Minerva. How does that dualism happen? It's something that's clearly sanctioned mm. by whoever has the power to build the temple. So there's a, 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 a Celtic goddess <coughs> called Sulis and there's a Roman goddess called Minerva. Yes. And somehow the two get associated. Yes, that's right. And uh, so whoever is building or sponsoring the temple, mm. which could be a local uh, civic leader, tribal leader, or it could be someone with authorised power from London, from the governor's office. They are the people who are making this decision, right. I think. But they're doing it with political awareness and sensitivity. Right. Near here, there is another small shrine in a rural setting uh, where there's a reference to a god called Apollo Cunomaglos. Now, I'm sure all our listeners have heard of Apollo, right. <laughs> but probably yeah. not many have heard of Cunomaglos. Right. Well, if you translate that literally, it means something like dog god or hound master. So there's some other deity here that's been linked to it. So, so do you get they're always new... very specific to place. So do you get a new god? Is... I think what it means is that both her religious traditions mm. feel comfortable right. in being able to worship this deity. Right. It works for both. So there's a large number of different religions. Do they all have central similar themes... Or are, they, are there the big differences between them? There are differences between them. The uh, pagan religion involves uh, very often the following of uh, particular rites and processes, whereas uh, some other religions are more demanding of the person. Right. Initiation rites can uh, be quite complex in some of the religions as right. well. Okay, so we're looking at the temple <coughs> pediment here within the museum. Tell me a little bit more about, about the pediment and what it tells us about religion. Well, the, the pediment is, first of all, it's a classical pediment. As we look at it, you can see the triangular form at the top, which, uh, when people think of classical temples, like the Parthenon or yeah. whatever, uh, resonates back to that. So this uh, is that on top would, of the temple, as it <coughs> This were, is, so. yes, on top of the temple as you face it. Okay. Uh, that would have been supported by huge columns. This pediment was probably at a height of about uh, 13 to 15 metres. Within it is imagery. Many pediments were plain, but this one is decorated. What you can see is a huge shield with oak leaves in its decoration, and in the centre is a very eye-catching representation of a deity. It's amazing, isn't it? And what, it is. what do we call him? He's I mean, um, beautifully preserved. What, well, what we uh, it's known as the Gorgon's Head, um, although uh, it's not really truly a Gorgon. It has elements of a Gorgon, wings in the hair, for instance, and snakes around it as well, which are things you could see on a representation of a Gorgon mm. anywhere in the Roman Empire. But there are other elements here that don't quite fit with that. It's... Uh, a very fiercely male visage, right. those beetling brows, that huge moustache. Well, the original Gorgon in uh, Greek mythology yeah. was actually female, right. so this uh, clearly isn't female. Mm. I think what's going on here is we're at a temple next to a spring, and the Gorgon idea, the Gorgon was uh, a protective image 
It was uh, given to Minerva as a gift and thereafter the Gorgon frequently appears on representations of her. You can see it on another small sculpture uh, we have just around the corner from here. So we're seeing here the, the emblem of the Gorgon but combined at this temple site next to hot springs with the image of a water deity, right. a water god. And water gods very commonly are fiercely male characters with lots of hair who look just like this. And so I think those two, the elements of those two things have been combined right. here. Okay. So the pediment is giving a, a, an idea of the local flavour of the, the yes, region here. it That's is, it. yes. But inside that temple would be the golden cult statue of the goddess Sulis Minerva, with her protective emblem symbolised in the pediment above. So uh, Minerva would have been recognised in this pediment? Uh, She's not in the pediment, but she would have been inside the building. So if somebody came here from abroad, would they recognise the gods that they were worshipping here? Well, people coming from abroad would know the name of the deity of the temple before they arrived. They would recognise quite a lot of the architecture and symbolism that surrounds it. If they were educated, certainly they would discern the elements of the Gorgon within that image we're looking at. And of course in Roman times it would have been a painted image, not a plain one as we Ah, uh, see today. So there would be things here that that they would recognise. They wouldn't necessarily exclusively be worshipping the goddess Sulis Minerva. From the precinct of her temple, we have an altar set up by a gentleman who we told comes from near Trier in modern Germany to Lucetius, Mars and Nematona. Well, we've got that conflation again, uh, Mars associated here with someone called Lucetius and Nematona. Well, Lucetius and Nematona are not names we know from the classical Roman pantheon, but we do know them from that particular area of Germany. And what has happened with him is that he is worshipping the gods back home. He has set up a small altar in the precinct of this temple to the gods back home. This may have been perhaps in fulfilment of a vow. He may have said that, you know, if I get to this great temple, I will set up a dedication to you here when he prayed to them before he left. That's a speculation, but it might be quite close to the truth. And the priests of the Sulis Minerva wouldn't have objected to these... Well, he clearly didn't, because the altar was there. So it's kind of a gathering of a whole number of different gods, of pantheon of gods, rather than... It is indeed, yes. yes. And indeed, when we come to look at the curses thrown into the spring, there are 130 altogether. Two of them actually refer to Mars. Right, Okay. So it's a very international place. It's yes, it a is. very yeah. diverse place. Yes. At this point, as people began to come into the museum, Stephen and I then went to go and see a skeleton, which kind of reinforced that point about Bath as an international centre. Here we're standing in front of a skeleton. Tell me more about who this is and what we know about them. We don't know the name of the person, but uh, we do know that uh, this was recovered from a location in uh, Lake Roman Bath. It's clearly a tall individual, it's male, and beneath it is a lead coffin, Uh, that it was found in. In addition to doing the usual forms of analysis, this one has also had isotope analysis carried out on its tooth enamel. And this has also thrown up something quite interesting about its life history. It would seem from this isotopic analysis that it was almost certainly a person who was brought up in the area of Syria and the Levant. 
uh, this is because the, the water sources around there have a, a distinctive and this carries through into our modern teeth. It's clear evidence to support the evidence we've already seen from inscriptions that people were coming to Bath from a long way away. This is quite a high-status coffin, a lead coffin. Most people couldn't afford them. Another aspect of this was that uh, from uh, analysis, it also transpired that in terms of diet, this person probably had what we would think of as a very rich diet. Right. He was uh, a great eater of meat, it would right. seem. Having said that, uh, this person met his demise okay. at the age of uh, probably about 40 to 45, okay. which was the average life expectancy in the Roman world. Right. Yeah. We then moved along to another part of the temple precinct. Tell me about the precinct, how it worked, and the process that people went through in studying their religion. Uh, we're standing directly in the entrance to the temple precinct. That's amazing. So this is, these are the actual flagstones on which they are, yes. would have you, passed. Yes, you can see a wear pattern on them, and it's literally where people walked oh, into the amazing. precinct. If we then turn through 180 yeah. degrees, we see what they were walking towards. And straight in front of us, about five metres away, is the great altar. And at a Roman temple, the great altar was not something that was in the temple itself, it was in the precinct outside. Indeed, all the activities that people would have taken place in, worship and perhaps consulting a priest or perhaps buying a trinket or something like that as a memento, all of these kind of activities would have taken place in the precinct. And over there in the distance is where the temple would be. It would have been up to about 13 to 15 metres in height, looking down on us, surveying this scene. Can I just say, actually, the videos you've got, so you've got, we're looking at one now, which actually shows that site that you're looking at, and the videos are brilliant. Actually. Yes, it, it does, really yes. The, showing what was going on. One of the complications with understanding this site is that we're in an underground area mm. here, so it seems now, but of course in the Roman world, it was open to the skies above. Yeah. By using projections and animations, as we have here, you can get a very clear perception of what the site looked like from wherever you happen to be standing. Tell me about the, the actual practice. So, you know, I've come here and I've come to worship Sulis Minerva. What would I do? If you were intending to sacrifice, which was uh, a normal thing to do... What sort of things might they sacrifice? Animals. And uh, you could imagine here that uh, the creatures sacrificed uh, could, on grand occasions, be something like a bull. But uh, perhaps for normal, ordinary people coming here, uh, it might be something altogether more modest, perhaps a chicken or a goat or something like this. And that sacrifice would be done at this altar? It would be done at the altar. The altar, as you can see, is quite tall. Certainly if you were sacrificing a cow, you would never get the cow on top of that altar. So it would have been sacrificed adjacent to the altar. This is a process that uh, would normally involve the priest making appropriate incantations and uh, perhaps leading a small ceremony, that kind of thing. And is that a private activity or a public? It can be both. People could come along and do, in effect, do their own thing. Or it could be that, uh, if it, particularly if it's some sort of special occasion, then uh, it's quite likely the priest would be involved. So you come in, you may be bringing your animal, but you may not be sacrificing something, is that? Uh, yes, that's right, yeah. you may not, you may simply pray. Okay. Yeah. Would you talk to a priest immediately, or would it, this could be a private ceremony that you simply go through without the intermediary of a, a priest? Again, I think practice can be variable. Right. depends probably very much about the particular... A regime that's being operated in that temple at that time. Right. What you probably wouldn't do is actually go into the temple building itself. 
the temple building was the home or the house of the goddess. So priests would go in there, no doubt uh, you know, people carrying out maintenance would go in there. Someone would need to stoke the eternal flame. But um, for normal people, it would be something they would look at. They might approach and look through the door, but right. they probably wouldn't go into the hallowed precinct. And would they expect that uh, Sulis Minerva presence was in there? Yes. That was a a holy of holies. Yes, that's right. right. So it was rather special, uh, set apart uh, from the real world. And would they interact with their priests in any particular way? The the priest might lead prayers in ceremonies. The, The priest would obviously be in charge if they were of a public nature. The other thing that would happen here, or could happen here, is that people could move to the left as we're looking at this scene. And in doing that, they would go through a door into the spring reservoir chamber. This is the point where the spirit of the goddess also dwelt. Apart from the formal building, which would have included the statue, I think on this site, with the hot spring, the spirit of Sulis would have been within that spring itself. And that is where sacrifices and sometimes offerings in form of objects might be thrown in. So that's where, in a sense, they can come into the physical presence of Sulis Minerva as yeah. she would reside in the spring as well. Yes. At the uh, very beginning of the development of this site, the spring was in effect an open pool, but it was enclosed. And of course, by enclosing it, you create an air of mystery and uh, it's a special place one goes into, becomes more grander, more awe-inspiring right. as a location. And within the spring waters themselves, mm. we have the basis for statues which sits just beneath the surface of the water. So if you put a statue onto that base, Mm. you don't see the base, you just see the statue. And it was probably creating the illusion that the statue was walking on water. And did Sulis Minerva have a particular character? We don't know very much about Sulis. It's a name that appears uh, either on its own or in, in association with Minerva. But we do know quite a lot about Minerva. Minerva was a goddess with many powers. These included the power of healing. And, of course, when you're here next to Hot Springs, that was probably the dominant quality that was relevant to this site. But having said that, she was also one of the three principal deities in the Roman pantheons. You have uh, Jupiter, Juno and Minerva. uh, So she is a significant deity within the pagan religion. Since we were talking about the deities at the Roman Baths, I spoke also to Juliet and Sophie and went to see two of the most recognisable and dramatic images at the centre, the Gorgon and the head of Sulis Minerva. So we're here with Juliet, who's a visitor services assistant here at the Roman Bath Museum. And we are looking at what I think is one of the most dramatic images of the entire museum. I said that to Juliet, just to put a bit of pressure on it. So Juliet, tell me about this image and what it's all about. Well, this is probably one of the most evocative images that we have here in the Roman Bars, and indeed of Roman Britain. I'll try and paint the picture because it's quite, it's yes, quite a lot going radiant, on. Yeah. Um, so we're looking at the pediment of the Temple of Sulis Minerva. So it's a large triangular shape. Uh, in the centre, we've got this face. Um, a, a male head, we think. Lots of uh, wispy, waving hair. Lovely facial hair and moustache on there. And this is what we affectionately know here at the museum as the Gorgon's head. Right. We call it a Gorgon, typically in Greek mythology, which is where this idea comes from. Gorgons are female, the most right. prominent being mm-hmm. Medusa with the, the snakes in the hair. Um, but this is a typical male image. Um, so it's obviously not a, a characteristic Gorgon. Um, it's clearly not anything like Solis Minerva, but all the images that we know of her. So 
its identity is really up for debate. Um, a popular theory is that it's uh, the local water god. Mm. Identity is really up for debate. Um, it could be Oceanus, the god of the river, um, perhaps even the grand Neptune himself, the Roman pantheon. If you completely flip it on its head, it could be the local solar deity, Sol. Um, we really don't know. Um, just the other images that we've got on here suggest it's more a water deity. We've got images of victory, we've got laurel crowns and wreaths, and all that association with, of course, as being the temple of Solis Minerva, the goddess of the spring. We've got all of her attributes on there. In the corners, you can see we've got um, globes representing her knowledge and wisdom. Right. The owl is on there as well. If you can, ah, okay. you can kind of spot it um, just to the right of the face there. Uh, it's really quite adorable. We've got Roman-style helmets with uh, dolphin crests. There's so much going on here. It really is a spectacular sight, and it really does hit you when you walk into this area of the yeah. museum. But just how impressive this would have been, even in the Roman times, to be sat on the top of uh, the grandest temple um, as you go into uh, the, right. the actual courtyard. Such a mixture of Roman imagery mm. and native right. Celtic imagery as well. As we've said before, the Romans are really good at mixing in local religions and cultures with their own, so that's possibly what's going on here. We've got a nice mixture of Roman imagery with all of the victories and the helmets, and then the local imagery as well. We've got loads of uh, native plants depicted on that, and of course the identity of the Gorgon himself may be a Celtic deity, we don't know. It shows the synchronicity of Roman right. religion and how they've come in, mixed with the locals, and really that this was a temple for everybody. You didn't have to be born and bred in Rome and come across going through time. This was for local people right. as well. Come here, worship the shared goddess. Suis Minerva is a hybrid goddess, after all, and that everybody can worship together in a shared space. Yes. So how was the Gorgon discovered? Uh, so this was only rediscovered in about 1790. Um, as you go down the steps into the museum, if you turn to the side and look at it side on, it's actually really, really thin. Okay. That's because um, this was rediscovered, it had been used as paving stones. Oh, so uh, when they were resurfacing, uh, oh. possibly around the uh, Abbey Church of Kingston Parade, mm. they'd lifted up the paving stones, all flat on the side, as everybody would see them in the Georgian times, lifted up, and lo and behold, on the oh. other side, there was this uh, fantastic carving. For being one of the uh, best examples we have of Romani British art, to survive so long being face down in the bath soil, it's really remarkable that it's become what it has today. It's That's amazing. That's a fantastic story. We're standing in front of one of the images of the museum. This really hits you, actually, when you come here. And this is uh, the boss, really, isn't it? This is Sulis Minerva. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm standing with Sophie, who is a visitor services assistant, who's going to tell me all about Sulis Minerva. Sophie. Yeah, so as you say, um, Sulis Minerva is really the centrepiece of the whole site. And this kind of the head of the statue that we have here really shows just how important a figure she was. So we're standing next to gilded bronze head of the goddess herself. Uh, so we only have this small piece of the statue. Originally it would have been a, a full-sized statue standing over six foot tall. Right. She would have also been topped by a Corinthian helmet. So, you know, even taller, uh, one of the kind of very big helmets. She is the same sort of goddesses as right. the Greek goddess Athena. Something the Romans did quite a lot was um, take bits of, of other religions. So Minerva was associated with Athena from the Greek pantheon and also the goddess Sulis of right. the Celts as they discovered uh, so, when they arrived here. So tell me more about Sulis. So Sulis was uh, the Celtic goddess of mm -hmm. the spring. So she was worshipped here. Before the Romans arrived, we don't have much evidence uh, mm -hmm. from this time as to what form this worship would have taken, but they have found pre-Roman coins in the spring, so we know people were coming here to make offerings to her. And when the Romans arrived and discovered the spring and heard the stories about this goddess, they thought, well, she sounds quite similar to our goddess Minerva, uh, both 
quite strongly associated with things like healing and wisdom. Uh, Minerva is also the goddess of warfare as well, which is why she has that uh, warlike helmet in a lot of images. So the temple to Sulis Minerva was built here, uh, right next to the spring, so they could then make offerings to the goddess in the spring, continue that tradition of throwing all sorts of things, coins, precious right. objects, uh, the curse tablets as well, um, so asking for people to be punished by yes. the goddess as well. And they would also have had the temple, which is where this statue would have sat. Right. So most people weren't actually allowed to go into the temple. It would have just been uh, priests and other kind of religious figures. So for most people, you would just get a small glimpse of right. her up the steps in the entrance to the temple. So it would be... Right, it's mystical, it heightened that sense of... Uh, exactly, yeah, the yeah. kind of slightly unknowable aspect yes. of her as well. And how was she found? She wasn't discovered until 1727, and it was a complete accident, really. Um, so it was only as Bath was becoming more popular as a spa town, they had more people visiting, more of a need for improved sanitation. So a sewer was dug underneath Stall Street, mm -hmm. uh, which runs kind of parallel to the Roman Bath still today. And while they were digging this sewer, at the bottom of the trench, they found this bronze head, very muddy and almost unrecognisable, but once it was cleaned up, they realised that it was something you know, really quite special and exciting. Special, quite, right? quite a discovery, yeah, yeah to have you know, started to be able to make out that face yeah, and those features. Yeah, it's an amazing image, isn't it? And the, you, know, the, you can still see the patina of the, of the gold and so yeah, on. It must have been an amazing see, yeah, discovery. you can see the layers of gold that had been added over the years as well. But unfortunately, the rest of the statue has never been found. Uh, so we're not quite sure what happened to it. Mm -hmm. Potentially, after Christianity became mm -hmm. the dominant religion, a pagan temple like this would have been seen as something that you didn't really want to keep. So the statue may have actually been yeah. deliberately destroyed. Yeah. Who knows yeah. what happened to yeah. the rest of it? I like to think that the rest of it might still be out there yeah, somewhere. We'll so if we, if we dig in the right place, maybe we'll find it again. Brilliant. Lovely. Thanks, so okay. Then it was time for another of the most extraordinary and unique survivals from the Roman baths at Bath, the curse tablets. And here at last, you get to find out what you had to do to be cursed with the loss of your mind and your eyes. You might be surprised. I'm standing with Stephen at a display of tablets. What, like my lead tablets covered in tiny writing. Tell us more about what these are, Stephen. Well, that these are the uh, curse tablets from Bath. They're registered on the UNESCO Memory of the World Scheme for Intangible Cultural Heritage. Indeed, they're the only objects from Roman Britain that uh, enjoy that status. Altogether, there are 130, although they're not all on display here. They are messages to the goddess, generally speaking from people who have suffered some form of uh, loss or theft, indeed, in some cases. What the prayers are doing is asking for the writing of the wrong that has befallen the individual. Sometimes they speculate as to who may have caused the wrong, and lists of names may appear. Right, so specific <laughs> accusations going on. Yes, here. absolutely. That is an outrage, I suppose. Uh, the purpose is just to help the goddess pin down who ah, the guilty character Provide might some be. evidence. Yes, that's right. No, I think it's one of these characters. Right. And that's interesting. So they presume that the, the goddess is, is not omnipotent. This is an uh, interesting point, because part of the idea, of course, is that the goddess is capable of uh, discerning who it is. So quite why you need to produce yes. a list of half a dozen possible <laughs> culprits uh, isn't really clear. Uh, but, you know, life in the past isn't always clear. No, indeed. <laughs> it's the foreign country, as they say. Yes, that's right. What we see looking at them 
is that they're not all uh, complaints of loss, right. but they're all complaints about something that's gone wrong. When they deal with loss, it's usually things that, to us, may not sound too dramatic. Right. Docimedes had stolen, he believed, a pair of gloves. There was the case of a bronze bowl. Okay, so stolen. these are... These are reasonably domestic type disasters. Yes, that's right. Uh, there are three cases of bathing tunics being <laughs> stolen. That's right. okay. Um, so, you know, those, uh, is that someone who's just round the corner in the bathhouse who's had their bathing tunic stolen, has nipped round <laughs> into the temple, yeah. uh, found a scribe to write a curse for him, and Somebody in his rage, yes, <laughs> in his rage, has cast this oh, into the spring for the right, eyes okay. of the goddess. So we're not talking about necessarily earth-shattering, life-changing events going on here? No, then, not so. necessarily at all. Small coins are mm. sometimes mentioned. Someone who lost six silver coins. Well, it's significant, but, yes. you know, it's... It's six silver coins. Yes, it is, yes. And then, of course, we see that people are not only asking for the goddess's help in getting them back, they're sometimes suggesting punishments that might be appropriate. Okay, are there any particular Uh, type of punishments? Well, um, uh, Docimedes, I mentioned, Mm -hmm. had, uh, had his two gloves stolen. He asked that the person who had stolen them should lose both his mind and his eyes. That's harsh. Yes, <laughs> as we would see today yes, I think in the context of yeah. modern crime and punishment. <laughs> uh, but that wasn't always the case in the past. They did have quite drastic ways of, of dealing with people. So if you got away with merely losing your eyes and your mind, right. you might have not done too badly. You thought, right, this is yeah. the result. So in someone who uh, asked the uh, person who had stolen them could uh, have their entrails eaten away... Um, Did somebody actually say that? Yes, yes. Entrails eaten away. Yes, yes. But of course, in looking at these, we're looking at things that were privately expressed thoughts intended for the goddess to read. They didn't expect someone to be coming along 2,000 years later and opening these things up to check on what they might have said. And what does Um, that tell us about human Well, it tells us that these are the intimate personal thoughts of people making these offerings. Maybe we shouldn't be reading these cursed tablets. Well... Tell me about the language that they're written in. Well, they're written in Latin, of course, but it is very difficult to read. That's partly just due to the way in which it's preserved. They're lightly scratched onto lead or pewter tablets. And because of corrosion of the tablets in the spring water over nearly 2,000 years, you do need good lighting conditions to be able to spot this and discern it. The, they're quite stylized in terms of their content and what they say. The kind of Latin that's used, uh, Latin clearly varied a bit mm. around the empire. And if you think of English, it can be yes. quite variable depending on where you are. So Latin can also end up with sort of local dialect forms. And so there is an aspect of that here. We're not seeing the pristine Latin that would necessarily of being spoken in the court at Rome. So it tells us something about the way that Latin has changed or is changing yes, at particular times. Yes, time. yes, and that is part of the interest of these tablets. Yeah. Two Latin scholars, yeah. that they themselves, in studying the Latin language, can see how it evolved. Yeah. But you've got one here, a text in British Celtic. Yes, that's right, or well, at least that's what we believe it is. Mm. The reason being that it cannot be translated. Right. It's fragmentary, and there's only a small piece of text. Texts in Celtic are known from Gaul, where there are two written in Gaulish Celtic. Right. And there's so much preserved there that it's possible to have a reasonable stab at interpreting it. 
But here we just have a fragment. And whilst the uh, letters sound Celtic, mm. and it probably is Celtic, we don't have enough yeah. to be able to translate it. Uh, but what kind of people would have thrown these cursed scrolls? Well, um, I think quite ordinary people. People who have lost things that to us seem quite modest. No one here is saying that their gold diadem has been stolen. Yeah, um, you know, so right. uh, it's all very small scale, small objects. But in a world that they inhabited, people did not own many objects. Yeah. And so, therefore, we shouldn't underestimate a pair of gloves. It may be he was the only person who had a pair of gloves, so it would have been important to him. Does that tell us something about the kind of people that visited the temple? Are we saying that uh, richer people wouldn't necessarily have visited here, or just they're not throwing cursed tablets? I think what it's showing is that the goddess was accessible to the poor, or or if not poor, then at least people of modest means. Mm. The worship was not restricted to some sort of high-level in society. And do you have a particular favourite? Uh, well, I do particularly like the one about the bathing tunic, yes, or one of those about yeah. the bathing tunics. So I can oh, just yeah. imagine that scene, yes. <laughs> Very good. Uh, yes. But, of course, that tells us that that person wasn't rich enough to employ a slave to guard oh, okay. their clothes whilst they were in the bar. So is that what would normally would have happened? If you were well-to-do, you yeah. would have uh, not just come on your own. You would have have your servants come with you. Right. They would have looked after your things for you mm. whilst you were undergoing whatever treatment it was. Right. Whereas another set of cursed tablets is, do the tablets show us anything about the passage of time? They can um, give us insight into changing trends and patterns. For instance, there is one that... Um, Its main purpose is to talk about the theft of six silver coins. In writing that, they have listed people who might be perpetrators, but they also describe the person in a rather ritualistic way. They say who may be uh, pagan or Christian, slave or free, and it's very similar to something that appears in the Bible. Uh, Indeed, the phrase pagan or Christian... The description of pagan as pagans is something that was made by Christians, not by pagans. Pagans didn't call themselves (laughs) pagans. No, exactly, yes. Um, So uh, it's being suggested that this, therefore, is actually a Christian who has written this curse. And interesting that a Christian would write a curse to a pagan goddess. Indeed, yes. But the style, as as I mentioned, uh, pagan or Christian, slave or free, um, that kind of phrasing is something that you do see in the Bible. And, of course, that is present in pagan texts. So, which comes first? The style of speaking that is recorded there uh, is something that resonates with what could already be heard in pagan temples. Which brings us very close to the end of our visit to the Roman bath complex. Before it was time to go, though, I asked Stephen to tell me about one other religious object that he found particularly fascinating from the site and which you can also see if you visit the museum. Another one is uh, a head, except it's not quite a head. Uh, It looks like a face. Mm. It's a sheet of tin that has been beaten out into the form of a face. But where the eyes are, there are sockets for the eyes, but they're closed, they're not open. Something could have been inserted into those sockets for it to look like eyes. And then when you look at the edges of this rather flat 
featured face. You can see there are tiny holes, and these are rivet holes. What happened was that this effigy was fixed to something else. In my mind's eye, yes. I see it probably being carried in procession. If you imagine someone yes. uh, walking along an aisle holding a pole with a head on it. So it would have been a religious item, I think. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, probably used as part of the temple ritual. It was found in the drain where it flows out from the sacred spring. And it's quite possible that what happened to it is that at the end of its period of use or whatever, it was returned to the goddess, uh, cast into the spring. So this priest mask would have been used for a specific special yes. occasion, created for it, and then yes. thrown into the spring. Yes. It might have been used uh, you know, once a year or okay. whenever right. uh, on some special occasion. Right. But we don't know what that is. Brilliant. That is definitively it, then. As you can probably tell from the relentless enthusiasm, I had a brilliant time. It was a real privilege for me. Many thanks then to everyone at the Roman Baths Museum at Bath, especially Stephen and Rebecca, of course. Thanks to all of you for listening to all of it. Good luck, everyone, and have a great week. Mm-hmm.